Amen. We invite you to take your seats now for this morning's storytelling time. I wanted to tell you a little bit about storytelling before I introduce our storyteller today. A reminder that this is a great opportunity for us to connect with each other on a more personal level. Everybody has a story to tell, at least one. You all have a story. So we are encouraging you, even if you just feel like, oh, I can't get up in front of people, you can. So if you have a story that just keeps coming to your mind, and a few of you have come up to me and said, hey, I think I have this story, but I'm not sure, I'm going to just push you to say yes, to offer to be a storyteller, because it's really a blessing to everyone else for you to come and tell us a story. And remember, they, they can be spiritual, they can just be funny, just any story that you have. So I want to put that out there, and I know today afterwards a bunch of you are going to rush up to me and say, please, can I do it next week? We'll put you on the waiting list, okay? Well, this morning we have a very special storyteller. Dr. Edie Phillips um, has been um, in this church for many years, but she's had a psychiatric practice here in the church uh, for many years that she's going to tell you about. And Dr. Phillips retired October 1st, much to all of our dismay. Um, but she is a, a really unique person with a great perspective, always this very calming presence, and uh, she's going to come up and tell us the story of how God led her here to have her practice here at Evergreen Covenant Church. So Edie, can you come on up and tell your story? Good morning. Uh, most people call me Edie. Um, all of us have times of um, pertinent decisions to be made. So I'd like to share about this particular aspect of my life. I was born in San Francisco. I went to medical school in Southern California. Um, made the decision that my specialty would be psychiatry, which is mental health, to help people with everything from adjustment disorders to serious illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, etc., and everything in between. It was a four-year training program in adult psychiatry and child psychiatry. Six weeks before the end, my first child was born, my son, so I returned half-time for 12 weeks, and then uh, was a new job. And in the midst of that, the chairman of the department asked me if I would like to be interviewed for Children's Hospital. So I said, well, depends upon what it offers. So the next day, the chairman of pediatrics called and said, can you come for an appointment? I said, well, I don't have childcare. He said, just bring your baby. So I walked back and forth in his office as we talked, and uh, he offered me uh, an opportunity to work there. With one child, I worked three days. With two children, I worked two days. And with three children, I worked one day a week. And that was for 15 years. And then my job, my position was going to full time, which I did not want to do. So I had a, very, a variety of options, but they didn't seem just right. So of course, as a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, I prayed for wisdom to know what would be best? And then I thought, oh, I'm going to make an appointment with Pastor Bud. 
My family had been attending this church for two years. Donna, the second time we came, rushed over and said, would you teach a class with me? So you know how Donna's an excellent recruiter and a delight to work with. Um, so I made the appointment with Pastor Bud. So I came into his office, I told him what I've told you. And he said, oh Edie, you make my heart sing. I said, I do? Why? And he said, why don't you make a proposal to the church? I said, the church? I've never heard of a, a mental health professional being in the church, particularly a psychiatrist. And he said, why don't you pray about it and think about it? So I said, well, all right. So I did, and it seemed possible. So I talked with a friend who said, well, easily you can make it self-supporting. So that was not an issue. And I thought, oh, how wonderful. I would be able to blend my faith in Jesus, my, my knowledge that it's Jesus who changes things. He changes our whole perspective of looking at things. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. That was 27 years ago. Um, each day has been delightful for me. Of course, there have been challenges. Um, I've been here maybe less than a year when I um, asked the pastor, who were some of the people in the church that were natural helpers? People who others would come to them and wanted to share their, their problems and sort of talk about it. So I knew none of them and sent them all a letter saying that was considering starting a lay counseling program so that if they were interested, could come and hear about it. So they came, and that was a group of about 50 people. Um, then I, I told them what would be involved would be a hour interview with me, taking an MMPI, which is a psychological test, uh, was taken on a computer, uh, where the result would be given to me, and then a letter about why they wanted to do it. So between all of that, I selected about 25 for the first class. So I trained them for two years before they saw their first client, and then the second class, the same thing. We were operational for about 25 plus years, which was a wonderful blessing for the lay counselors, several of whom are here, and uh, for the people, the clients that they served. This was in the community as well as within the church body. Um, and of course, in addition to that was my practice with people both in the church and in the larger community. Uh, all sorts of religious perspectives, um, but willing to hear, and, and of course, professionally, I didn't press anything on anybody, but if they wanted to talk about the spiritual aspect of life. And it's very fashionable now in current understanding of health to be concerned about four aspects of life. You can think about a table that has four legs, physical, mental, social, and spiritual. And if you have that, in some kind of balance, you're more likely to be content and going in a good direction. So uh, there's all kinds of ways of approaching spiritual. So that's it. Um, thank you for listening to my story.
This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from Proverbs 24 and 25 in the New International Version. Proverbs 24. Eat honey, my son, for it's good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there is future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 25, 16 and 20, 17, or 27. If you find honey, eat just enough, not too much of it, or you will vomit. It's not good to eat too much honey, nor is it honorable to search out matters that are far too deep. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Edie. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are continuing our series in the book of Proverbs called Life Pro Tip. And today the title is Like Honey. Uh, I kind of have a uh, special relationship with honey. Every morning I start my day with honey. Uh, The secret ingredient to my coffee is just about a half a teaspoon of honey instead of sugar. I started that a few years ago, and I've never gone back. I was uh, traveling a little bit this week and down in Vancouver, Washington uh, at the Hampton Inn. They had no honey, so I had to settle for sugar, totally inferior coffee experience. So if you want to improve your coffee in the mornings, honey is the key. Uh, In fact, I like honey so much, back when Susie and I were more recently married, we thought about starting a business with honey tea, uh, with honey and lemon, and so we bought up the URL honeylemon.org and honeylemon.com, and uh, we kind of pondered this idea for years. And so our email addresses were peter at honeylemon.org and Susie at honeylemon.org, but that never took off. But actually, my uh, deal with honey goes even further back. And I'm not sure if it was because my mom was an immigrant, uh, but she really valued certain things. And when something was really, really good and really, really precious, she would say, oh, Peter, this is just like honey. Like honey. And then sometimes she would actually have honey, And then she would say, if the honey was really good, she would say, oh, Peter, this honey is so good. It's just like medicine. And shove a spoonful of it in my mouth. (laughs) I think there's something special about honey. The Bible talks about honey. If you Google Bible and honey, there's lots of verses uh, that talk about honey. Do you have a relationship with honey? Any of you call your significant other honey? Raise your hand. Yeah? The rest of you, what, what are your pet names? Shout it out. <laughs> Pumpkin. <laughs> um, this is the topic today that we're going to learn about, that everything in life actually points to something else. Whatever it is you love, whether it be honey 
whether it be a significant other, whether it be a job, whether it be a new relationship or a new toy, a new city, a new feeling, whatever it is that you deem precious or important at this moment, all it's going to do at the end, that story will end with it pointing to something else. There is going to be some disappointment, some realization, some waking up to the fullness of what it actually is in and of itself. And then its final job, if it does its job in your life, is going to be to point you to something else. It's going to say its final words to you. Keep going. I'm not it. This is not it. Not this place. Not this job. Not this thing. I am not the one. Keep going. The best things in life, if it does its job, points to something else. And then you follow that arrow, and you go to that thing that it was pointing to, and then if, it, that, if that thing does its job, its final words to you will be, keep going. You're not arrived yet. This is not it. Have you discovered this about life yet? That even life itself is an arrow pointing to something else. Just a mere sign. Keep going. If your spouse, if they do their job, what they're going to do is point you to something else, somewhere else, someone else. Seth Godin, a business guy that I listen to uh, every week, I've read several of his books. I really like the way he thinks. He has this one thought that he repeats over and over again, and he says this, nobody sells anything. All anyone ever sells are feelings. Whatever device you just bought, it's not the device itself. It's the feeling it creates in you. Whatever piece of clothing, whatever vacation, whatever trip, whatever car, whatever relationship, the engine of the world is to just get you to feel things. That's what makes the world go around, the feelings we're chasing. That's all we actually have. We can't take it in except to have a feeling. And so if you are in marketing or you're in advertising, you know this. You're not actually selling the thing. No beer commercial ever sells beer. It's not about that. It's about the feeling that it promises you. Right? Every device. Have you ever watched an Apple ad? They're not selling devices. They're selling a feeling, a mood, a color, a thought, an idea. What was their famous ad campaign? Think different. What does that have to do with anything? It has to do with everything because they're selling you feelings. And then once you get that feeling, what's the final word that that feeling has to say to you? Keep going. The feeling isn't it either. The feeling itself fades, disappears, leaving you to wonder what that was all about. What is it all about? Abraham Maslow, a famous psychologist, uh, he came at a time when uh, people viewed psychology as only for really crazy people. Uh, they... People just thought, if you're sick, you need psychology, but normal people don't need psychology. They, what they call pathologized everything. And then he came around, and he says, actually, we have a hierarchy of needs. And so it's not just about getting sick people to be okay. It's about getting okay people to really live good and meaningful lives. And for them to live this meaningful life, they have to have these needs met. 
And he said the first set of needs are what he called physiological needs. And once you have those needs met, you would think that'd be it. But no, those needs point to another set of needs. And the second set of needs are called safety needs. You need to feel like you're not going to die, that you're physically safe. And then once you have those needs met, those needs say, oh, we're not it either. They point to another set of needs that's called social belonging needs. It's love and belonging. And you would think that if I am loved and if I have somebody to love in return, that's it. I'm done, right? No. Those needs then point you to another set of needs. And those needs he called self-esteem needs. You need to feel okay and good about yourself. You need to experience self-worth. And then you think, okay, once I'm okay with myself, then am I at peace? Nope. Those needs, their final words to you is keep going. There is more. They point to a set of needs called self-actualization needs. You need to reach your potential. You need to figure out who you are. It's not good enough to just feel good about yourself. you got to know what yourself is. Is that it? Nope. Those needs point you to yet another set of needs that he died before he got to publish called self-transcendence needs. That once you find yourself, the need you feel after that is to give yourself away to a higher and greater and bigger purpose beyond yourself. You have to transcend yourself. And then he died, and so we don't know what's after that. But I think they point to something else too. Why wouldn't they? Because everything else has been pointing to something. Dave Chappelle uh, the great prophet and theologian and philosopher, in his latest Netflix special, he says this. He opens this way. This is a direct quote. Good people of Atlanta, we must never forget that Anthony Bourdain killed himself. Anthony Bourdain had the greatest job that showbiz has ever produced. This man flew around the world and ate delicious meals with outstanding people. That man with that job hung himself in a luxury suite in France. What do you make of that? Not to make mental health light of mental health, but why would that man who was so loved and respected and rewarded day after day with the best life that any one of us could ever design for ourselves, hang himself in the best hotel in France. Why would he do that? Unless he got there and realized that wasn't it. It also was pointing to something else. Keep going. And we know this is true. Wherever it is you think you are meant to arrive at once you get there. We get trapped in this cycle of arrival, survival thinking. And then as soon as we get it, what happens? It disappears. We're chasing a ghost. But what if you catch the ghost? Then what? It itself points to something else. Keep going. Keep going. I landed on this verse for me. And this is a combination of life experience, combination of thinking, combination of observing, combination of just deep self-examination. 
on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. John 14, 20. I look at world history. I look at the lives of everyone that I know are better than me. I examine my own journey, my own restlessness, and I realize everything that I've ever wanted, I've basically achieved. And yet, I'm still restless. And St. Augustine said this, that until we find our rest in him, our hearts will remain restless. I don't know if that's true. None of us know this because we haven't arrived at John 14, 20 yet. He says, on that day. I don't know when that day is. You don't know either. But if you are sitting here and you're a Christian, this is what you believe, that there will come a day when finally no more signs, no more arrows, no more placeholders. You will arrive at the thing that everything else had been pointing to. And I think that is oneness with Christ. That there's a kind of deep homelessness that's driving our existence. It's at the very core of who we are and why we are and what we are. It's the engine. Is this longing for Christ himself. And if you're not a Christian, you still need something. What is it for you? What is that final resting place? People have transcended the self, as Abraham Maslow said. They've given their life away. And even that is meaningless at the end. I think until that day. When is that day for you? And for me, for me, I have come to a place where I accept this to be the ultimate truth. Oneness with Christ is my telos or end. And everything else is a placeholder. Even the very best things are mere placeholders. So today we're going to look at a couple of verses. And we're going to learn that honey, the great promise of honey that my mom promised, if something is like honey, it's the very best thing. Peter, go find honey. That when I find it, even honey itself is not going to be honey. Honey is going to be so disappointing. Honey itself is just pointing to honey. What the heck is honey then? If the best things are like honey, then what? And so here is the second truth we'll learn. That being like honey is greater than honey itself that the promise of honey points to the thing that is greater than honey. If you settle for the thing itself, it's so disappointing, it's so shallow, it's so trite, it's so finite, it's not going to do it for you. Have you ever vomited things because you got too much of it? I was uh, asking myself this question. The first memory that came back is the time that I vomited during a, a high school retreat. Official game put on by the church itself. It's a water drinking contest. Gallons of water and buckets. They knew. They knew what was going to happen. They still put us through it. Water is a beautiful thing. We cannot survive past three days without water. 
right? And yet, too much of it, and what happens? Body rejects it. Your body will literally drown if you have too much water. So as, an, as a defense mechanism, it makes you vomit. You cannot have too much water. Your salt balance is going to be off. You will die. What about alcohol? Jesus made alcohol. First miracle was to make alcohol. And yet too much of it, and what? You swing the other way, and you vomit. What about a person, a relationship? The one, the perfect one, the one destined for you, meant for you. It's him, it's her. Put all your eggs in that basket. Look only to this person for everything. And guess what? Vomit. You will, you will swing the other way. It's called codependency. What about a church? Put all your hope in a church. Make your whole life the church. Be here five days a week. Be that person who's here every day. And guess what's going to happen? It's a matter of time, just a ticking time bomb before you vomit. I know because I have talked to hundreds of these people who love the church, who made church everything. And then it broke their heart. Any vocation at some point breaks down and you're left feeling sick and then you vomit. Oh, I've talked to so many of you who have asked me to pray you would get that job. And just months later, sometimes weeks later, sometimes a couple of years later, you're praying for another job. Why? Why do we consume and then vomit, consume and then vomit? What is this cycle? So that's what the verses have to teach us. Verse Proverbs 24, uh, 13 and 14. They should be read together. I want to read them together. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Okay, so far honey is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Okay, so honey is good. It's sweet to your taste. But then verse 14 says, oh, we're not actually talking about honey. We're talking about wisdom. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. So honey is really, really good but as a metaphor to describe wisdom. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there is a future for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Honey is great when it's like honey. Wisdom is like honey. Wisdom is good, Proverbs says, when it's like a woman. Do you know the book of Proverbs personifies or anthropomorphizes wisdom as a woman? A woman is great. Wisdom is good. She's like a crown. A good woman is like a crown. And the proverb says crown is good because it represents wisdom, the wisdom of the king, King Solomon himself, who literally wears the crown. But you know what the book of Proverbs also says? Too much woman, and it's better to live on the corner of a roof. What? Are you serious? Yes, look at Proverbs 25, verse 16 and 27. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it, and what? You will vomit. In, out, in, out. 27, it is not good to eat too much honey. This is referring to wisdom now. Nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep. Even wisdom itself is not your salvation. 
You can be the wisest person in the world, have every bit of knowledge there is, and yet that itself will be something you end up vomiting. That's what 25 is saying, chapter 25. That honey is great, but eat just a little bit. Oh, actually, we're not talking about honey. It's wisdom, because wisdom is like honey. But actually, wisdom itself, don't eat too much of it. Don't think too much. Don't seek out matters too deep for you. You don't want to know how the sausage is made, do you? <laughs> do you really want to understand another human being? Do you know how disgusting human beings are? Do you know how inconsistent and wicked and all over the place people are? Enjoy them from a distance. Everybody is basically a 50-footer. When they look good, stop. Don't get any closer, verse 27 says. Stay right there. Like, I love Dave Chappelle. I think he's really insightful. I don't want to ever meet him. I don't want to know about his personal life. I don't want to know what his house looks like. I don't want to know how he talks to his wife or his kids. Nothing. Keep him there. Because too much, and I know I will hate him. I will vomit him. This is the way life works. And this is the warning of Proverbs that like honey is way better than honey itself. That like wisdom is much better than wisdom itself. Like woman, whatever she stands for, is better than woman herself. King who wears a crown, no good. But like a crown, like a king, awesome. When we are doing our job, which is to point to something else, we're amazing. Whether we succeed or we fail, we point. By reminding you that love is such a thing because I love you well, or reminding you that you actually want real love and not fake love by failing in my attempt to love you, I still do my job if I point. Let's apply this. Uh, Four areas. Number one, parents. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying this. If you believe in your parents too much, you're going to end up hating them. If you give all of your allegiance to them, if you give them the power to define you, you're going to end up hating them. Your wife too, your husband too, your brother and your sister, and even yourself. If you let yourself be your ultimate, you're going to end up hating yourself. You're going to vomit yourself. Your first allegiance has to be me. I have to be the one to define you. If you consume too much of your parents, you're going to end up hating your parents. You're going to end up vomiting your parents. Don't you know this is true? That no human being deserves the power over you that we give other human beings. That we should never look too deeply. We should never look too up. We should never look too longingly at another person. Because they will fail us and we will swing the other way. We will oscillate back and forth between love and hate, love and hate, love and hate. It's not just for teenagers going through a rebellious period. Go ahead, pick one person and love them with all your heart. 
Give them everything, and you will vomit them out. That's a promise. Um, I, I had a friend who recently lost a parent, and we had this conversation. And this is the counsel I normally give when people lose a loved one. I always say this. You have to have two funerals. You have to have two funerals. Because when they die, what, what, what they take with them to the grave is the opportunity for them to be the ideal parent that they never were. And we come to them with these ideal longings. We want them to be this amazing parent, yet they weren't. And so we have this war with them, but as long as they're alive, there's still hope. But once they die, we have to allow that ideal parent to also die. So you, that's your first funeral. Before you ever have the physical one, the literal one, you have to have the psychological, spiritual, emotional funeral. Oh, mom, you failed me. But you were never meant to succeed in your success and your failure. You pointed to the true mom or the true dad. Your job was never to be perfect. Your job was to point. And you couldn't fail at that. Every time you loved me well, it reminded me that I was meant for love. Every time you didn't love me well, it reminded me that I was meant for love. Where did I get this idea that somebody should love me better? Where did that come from? Oh, from the thing that love in its success or failure was pointing to in the first place. And so you have that first funeral, and then with peace and freedom and healing, you can have the second funeral. You can let them rest. Say, Mom, Dad, enter into your rest. I no longer hold you. I no longer force you to haunt me. You are released. So much healing and freedom to be found once we learn how to release people to just be signs that tell us to keep going. So much heartache, so much frustration, so much bitterness and resentment and woundedness as long as we hold on to people demanding that they be more than just a sign. Come to Jesus Learn through Christ how to hate everyone else, including yourself, in your life, and then you will never have to hate them in reality. Spouses, same thing. Your spouse will never be perfect, never be perfect. I want you to think about your spouse right now. Release them, say, you were never meant to be perfect. You're not actually anything. You're just another person like me with your own hopes, wants, and dreams. Why would I expect you to understand my idea of perfection? And if you were perfect, what would I do with you? And what would you be doing with me? I tell couples all the time, the perfect one is out there. They want nothing to do with you. <laughs> they have found their match, and it's not you, turns out. And so accept this person you are with, because they fit you just perfectly. And their job is not to be perfect. What, what are you going to do if something is perfect? Let's say you found the perfect thing, whatever it is, perfect idea, a perfect marble. What? What are you going to do? You're going to eat it? You're going to become one with it somehow? What will you do? How will you even relate to perfection? It's pointless. What about leaders? 
Jesus, when he was a leader on earth, there was another leader that came up to him, a rich, powerful guy, and he said to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' first response was, why do you call me good? Don't you know that God alone is good? Meaning, why are you thinking in those terms? Good? Do you mean there's a bad? Do you mean you're capable of good and bad? Do you think you're capable of good? That's a category in your brain. What's wrong with you? Wake up. No one is good but God alone. And then he's implying, since you call me good, I am God. You're right about that, but I'm going to make this point with you. Why do you call me good? Why? Why is that a construct in your silly little brain? He says, I've kept all these laws. He's like, yeah, well, actually you haven't kept any of them because you didn't do this one main law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. You haven't given all your stuff away for your neighbors. And then he walks away sad. All that law keeping, all that goodness didn't amount to being good after all. And then his disciples said to Jesus, teacher, teacher. And then Jesus rebukes them and says, why do you call me teacher? There's nobody who's a teacher. Everybody is just a conduit at best. We don't know anything. We're just empty. We're broken. We're needy. What do you mean teacher? What do you, what's in your brain, what is a teacher? And why do you believe I am the teacher? That says more about your mistaken idea of what you are capable of being than what you think I am. And he rebukes them for calling him teacher because on this side of heaven, there are no teachers. We're all just students. Jesus is saying, stop looking up to people. There's no pedestal that anyone should be standing on. And if they deserve to be on a pedestal, why do they need a pedestal? Because they're actually short. The fact that you put people on a pedestal just means they don't deserve to be on one. They, don't, they shouldn't need to be on one. They really should be nine foot tall. But they're not. So we make them out to be. The whole idea is a contradiction. What about the church? Our church is God. This construct, this way of worshiping, or the body of knowledge we have, theology, religion, are all these God. Why do we do church in the first place? Why do we gather like this? The Seahawks are playing really soon. What are you doing here? Why are you here? A theologian said this. He said, a church is just the point at which the need of the pastor meets the laziness of the people. I have a need for it to be my birthday every week, to be stared at, to get attention. To, and then you don't want to work on your own theology, so then you get it from me. That's why we have church. That's what this one theologian says. Another psychiatrist, Edwin Freeman, says, a church is just a collision of three families of origin. You and your families of origin, the pastor and his or her family of origin, and then us together as a family of origin. And if your family of origin messed you up, that's why you're at church, and the family of, my family of origin messed me up, that's why I became a pastor. What do you think is going to happen when we form a family together? Perfection? <laughs> Are we going to arrive? No, we're just a bunch of broken people. But why do we get together? Because we together, as the body of Christ, form an arrow pointing to someone, something else. You come to church and realize, 
oh, they're just like me. The disappointment is so necessary. A favorite theologian of mine, this Irish guy named Pete Rollins, he says that he has so many students looking up to him, they're calling him a guru. And he says, my primary job as their teacher is to figure out how I'm going to disappoint each of them. Because if I don't disappoint them my way, I'm going to disappoint them their way, and then we won't be in relationship anymore. Your job, our job, is to disappoint people, to point to Christ, so that whether we succeed or we fail, we point people, I think, to oneness with Christ. Um, when I came here, I was very aware that Pastor Bud uh, really built this church. And I was really impressed with his gravitas, you know, his presence. He was such a weighty guy, you know. And uh, uh, I asked him, you know, why he left. He said, well, Peter, it was time. And since I left, I had the best time ever. He loved leaving this church as much as he loved being in the church. And it began to uh, turn in my brain the idea that maybe one of the jobs of this church is to be a placeholder for pastors. That one of the callings on Evergreen is to send pastors out to go do another thing that fits them even better. So then I was like, oh, what about Pastor Eric? He, pres- he came after Pastor Bud. A hundred percent, this is my opinion, a hundred percent of the people who knows Pastor Eric would agree with the statement that Pastor Eric, as a professor of church history at the university, is way better fit than being the senior pastor at this church. This church sent him out. This church was a placeholder, an arrow. And then after Eric was Pastor Greg. 100% of the people who knows Greg would say, Pastor Greg is so much better as the chaplain of Covenant Shores than he was as the pastor of Evergreen Church. In fact, some would say that the Covenant Shores has never seen a better chaplain before Greg. He's so uh, thriving in that role. And then we almost overlap Pastor Jeff Palmberg, who was Bud's son. And I was just with Jeff and Tammy at a pastor and spouse retreat at Camp Cascades a few weeks ago. And we ended up talking for about an hour and a half. We laughed. We cried. We hugged. We prayed. I think Tammy hugged me like 30 times. (laughs) If you know Tammy, you're not surprised. And they are thriving so much. They love TWISP. They love their life. And this church sent him out to do that. Guess who comes next? Guess what my hope is? That you will send me out and I will end up doing something that fits me so much better. I will say, man, Evergreen really is specialized to send pastors out into their much better fit role. Are you okay being a placeholder? Are you okay not being everything to all people? Are you ready to quit the job of trying to please everyone and try to be this hero or this guru? That's not your call. You're not meant to be good. You're not meant to be teacher. You're just meant to be an arrow. You're meant to be like honey. So we end with this verse. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me. I am in you.
Would you pray with me? God, I don't know when that day is coming, but I pray for that day for each one of us when we will finally give up, finally stop trying to make everything and everyone the thing that we have a longing for deep in our hearts. Nothing and no one else can bear that weight. So God, by your spirit, help us to release everyone and everything. Help us to be at peace with things as they are and put our hope in you. Lift our eyes towards you. Lord, we look to you. We turn our eyes to you, Jesus. It is you. It has always been you. It will always be you. In Jesus' name, amen.